a welcome to all of you this morning. We're so glad that you're here, and we're glad that you're here because we're working to create a community where you can find a place to belong, no matter where you're at in your faith journey. Uh, you know, if we were to compare our stories and our experiences in terms of Christmas uh, as adults, I suspect that if we compared notes, it would all be very different. But if we were to compare our notes as to our experiences as children, that we actually have a lot in common. In fact, uh, you know, confession is good for the soul. I mean, we're, yeah, we're not Catholic, but we're going to do a little confession this morning. Uh, but we'll just keep it between us, okay? Uh, but how many of you, as you were growing up, how many of you, as you, of you as you were kids actually searched for presents that your parents had hidden around your home. So raise your hand if you actually searched. Okay, very good. Shauna, you did? All right, my wife just confessed, the rule follower. So, uh, all right, and if you're online, you can give a thumbs up if you did this. Okay, so how many of you actually, when you found them, you actually took them out and played with them before Christmas morning? Okay, any of you? None of you? Oh, okay, we got one honest person. Okay, uh, so I, well, I don't know about those of you online, because there are those of you, you took it out, you played with it, and then you broke it. It's like, what do you do with that? Uh, for my situation, I just rewrapped it, opened it Christmas morning, like, it's broken. Like, what do you do? Uh, and then, in fact, I remember as a kid, I was so bad. If I found them and they were wrapped, I would very carefully unwrap them so that I could see what it was and then wrap it back because I just, I just need to know. In fact, I never quite grew out of this. In fact, I remember my mother-in-law getting so mad at me about two years into our marriage because she had wrapped and shipped parent uh, presents to us from California. And my particular presence, as I felt the package, I could kind of feel a little like indentations. I could tell that the, the lettering was raised on the box of whatever it was. So, and I know, you know where I'm going. I went, I got a piece of paper and I laid it flat and I took a pencil just the side of the, and did it really lightly so that I could see what it was. And I'm like, boom, now it's Dracar Noir. So that dates me, right? So I, I knew what it was. So I, I, I'm so proud. I wanted, because of my temperament, I want some praise from my wife on my spy skills. So I go and I'm like, honey, check this out. Look what I did, how smart I am. She rats me out to my mother-in-law. And in that moment, I knew why her younger brother had tormented her so much growing up. Like, what a tattletale. So she, she rats me out. I'm still a little bitter. Uh, but, you know, when we're kids, the common thing that we all experience is, you know, leading into Christmas, it's just the wait is agonizing. Like the days right before Christmas are just like the longest days of the year, knowing that Christmas break from school is coming and uh, staring at the tree. For most of us, you know, we see presents just continue to get added under the tree, and just the wait for it is just agonizing. It seems like it takes forever for Christmas Day to get there. Uh, I, I remember when I was seven, uh, waking up in the middle of the night, uh, not long after midnight, so Christmas morning, Germantown, Wisconsin, my bedroom was upstairs. And so I, I crept down the stairs because I was determined to catch Santa, no joke. And about halfway down, I was actually able to peek around the wall and uh, see that a ton of presents had just magically appeared under the tree. So clearly I'd come like this close to catching the chubby home invader in the act. And it was everything that I could do to not run in and wake up my parents because I was pretty sure they were going to kill me, Christmas or not. And maybe you, as a kid, like you wait like to that last, last possible moment, like, okay, I don't think they'll kill me if I wake them up now. But then you become an adult. 
And most of us have children. And somebody says, hey, it's two weeks to Christmas. You're like, oh no, it's two weeks to Christmas. And the kids are like, oh, it's two weeks to Christmas. And like they're excited and we're panicking. Uh, but when we're kids, the great thing was is it's no matter how slow it felt or how long, long it took, uh, it, we always got there. That there was a promise, there was a guarantee that Christmas morning was coming. And the interesting thing is that dynamic of waiting and waiting and waiting for Christmas morning in a very real way was the very dynamic that, the, that was leading into the very first Christmas. Uh, as some of you know, most of you know that for many, many, many generations, there was always a remnant of Jewish people who waited every single day for the arrival, not of Santa Claus, but what they called the Messiah. In every generation, there was a group of people that they literally lived every single day following God's commands, knowing that this could be the day that the Messiah arrives. But unlike the certainty of our Christmas, for them, generation after generation after generation happened, and nothing happened. 99.999% of these people who waited and waited and waited for the coming of the Messiah, they lived their lives and they died seeing no fulfillment of that pro promise. And they prayed and they waited and they remained faithful. And many Jews peeled off and did other things. They abandoned their faith. They just determined, you know what, it's just a fairy tale. It's just a myth. Uh, who in the world would devote their lives to a story, an event, a promise a couple thousand years old? How ridiculous is that? But there was always a group that got up every day as if this could be the day that the Messiah comes. And today, 2,000 years after the first Christmas, we're beginning this series, The Thrill of Hope, because we could all use a little extra hope these days. And we have more in common with the people of the first century than we realize. Because at some point in your Christian, in your Christian experience, for those of you who decide to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, there's going to be times that God just seems so quiet and so inactive and so seemingly silent. There are just going to be times in your life where you look around and you go, why, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I attending? Why am I serving? Why am I giving? Why am I believing? Why am I obeying? Why am I missing out on opportunities? Why am I not moving in? Why am I not taking the money? Why am I not running off? Why in the world am I continuing day after day after day to live my life as if there is something bigger than me? As if there's something actually to the Bible? And just, am I just following along because it's what my parents taught me and it was the way that I raised? Is it just that I have fear that if I uh, abandon my faith or walk away from God that somehow it's not going to go well for me? Is it nothing more than superstition, than something that I actually believe? And at some point in all of our lives, there are periods or even seasons, even years, where we look around and we wonder. And if you ever wondered anything like that, you're, you're not alone. And because of who we are and who we're seeking to connect with, I know for some of you, you're walking through a season like that right now. And you're dealing with that doubt right now. So what we're talking about today and next Sunday and then Christmas Eve, please don't miss that. What we're talking about is especially for you, it's for all of us. 
Because with all the stress and the circumstances and the pain that we've experienced this year, we need it more than ever. And as we're, we're going to see the Christmas story, it's for you and for me. If you have your Bibles or the Bible app, you want to follow along. Uh, we're going to be in the New Testament and in, chap- in Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. And as you find that, here's why this is so relevant to us. Because the Christmas story around the two characters that we're going to talk about today and their story is your story as well, and my story as well. And here's how it begins. In the time of Herod, and this is Herod who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron. So basically, Elizabeth and Zechariah are both part, both part of the priestly line of Israel. Uh, basically, they are preacher's kids who were preacher's kids who are preacher's kids. And they come from this long line of what we would consider this holy, righteous uh, priest. And this detail begins to tee up some of the tension in the story. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. So the, the writer Luke basically is saying that when God looked at these two people, he went, they're doing it right. Look at the way they live. They're doing it right. They're doing everything right, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And if you read the Old Testament, that's a lot. I mean, we don't even like to read through it. It's just so complex and complicated. But they, here's a couple, they're doing it right. They're observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. In other words, if you were to send a private investigator to follow them around for an extended period of time, he would come back with nothing to report. And what's amazing is that they're doing what they're doing as priests and followers of God based on a promise that had been given a couple thousand years earlier. And for the last 700 years, God has done nothing for the nation of Israel. And and yet these two, they get up day after day after day as if Christmas is coming as if the Messiah is actually going to come, as if God is actually going to keep and fulfill His promise. Though, again, there's no evidence that God was going to do anything of the sort, and yet they devoted themselves. And see, we would be tempted if we could go back in time and talk to them in that moment, go, like, why? Like, how's this working out for you? Because Luke tells us they were fully devoted to God, living blameless lives, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. So, let me get this straight. You get up day after day after day because of some 2,000-year-old promise, waiting for a Messiah, serving in the temple, being good people, missing out on opportunities, and this God that you're so faithful to leaves you with no kids, without an heir, And see, that can be a big deal in our culture. We can't even begin to get our minds around how big of a deal it was in this first century Eastern culture. And in this culture, it was always the woman's fault. So our culture, for us guys, everything's the guy's fault, right? So in this culture, everything is the woman's fault. See, women always got the blame, never men. Because part of it is there just was no medical understanding about this. They just didn't know. All they knew was the woman can't get pregnant. And again, as important as it is in our culture, often as it is for a woman to have a baby, and I don't mean to be offensive, this is just fact, in this culture, it was about all a woman was considered good for, that and cooking. They were almost always uneducated, they had no political standing, they generally couldn't work. In fact, a woman's testimony 
uh, uh, about a crime or a legal matter in which they may have even been an eyewitness wasn't even considered or admissible in court. So, so, so this is her situation. And in fact, one of the things that help us, should help us have confidence that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are all true is because women play a prominent role in the unfolding events of the life of Jesus. And if you were trying to make up a religion or a movement in, a, in this culture, you would never have written the story this way. In fact, who do the Gospels tell us were the first witnesses to the empty tomb, the resurrected Jesus, and the first to know and believe that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead? Women. The Gospels tell us this, which you wouldn't write that unless it was true. Because in this culture, women had no standing. And not only that, but there was a, a bit of a religious, there wasn't a bit, there was a religious stigma that God granted children to women that he felt were worthy, and which babies and which uh, lived and which babies died based on the mother. So for a woman to not be able to get pregnant in this culture, there's a sense in which God has chosen to reject her, turn his back on her. So Elizabeth, this righteous woman who'd lived blameless before God throughout her young years, her middle years, and into her later years, it's just not going to happen for her. In fact, Luke tells us they were both, old, both well advanced in years. It, it was over. It was too late. God hadn't done it for them. He wasn't going to do it for them. He had done nothing for them lately. And we find out later in the story that through the years, they prayed the desperate prayers of any couple that just desperately wants to have a child. And God had said no. So Elizabeth, she lives with the shame and the pain all the way into her old age. And again, what's so ridiculous about this is that their entire faithfulness to God was based on some supposed promise to, made to a, a descendant named, or an ancestor named Abraham 2,000 years earlier. Not 2,000 years from now, 2,000 years from their time and when they lived. So 2,000 years before that, God supposedly appeared to Abraham and said, I will make you a great nation, which, okay, that happened, which I will bless, uh, and I will bless you and make your name great, and that happened. Uh, I would guess that all of you had heard the name Abraham before you walked in the building or logged on today. So that happened, and, this, and, uh, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and for a while that happened, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and we're still, we're still trying to figure that out, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, you being Abraham. So this is why the Jews felt that God had something more for the nation of Israel, because after God gave Abraham this promise, Abraham finally had a son who had a son who had a bunch of sons who moved to Egypt and became a nation, the nation of Israel. Then they moved back to their land, the promised land, and then they became a kingdom. And that's when things really begin to take off for them. They become a king. And, and, and it looked like during the age of the kingdom that this was when God was actually going to fulfill this promise he made to Abraham to bless all peoples of the earth. Uh, there was David, and then there was the golden age of Israel during the time of King Solomon. And things were incredible. And if ever there was a time for God to leverage the nation of Israel to bless the peoples of the earth, it was during the time of Solomon. Because after that, everything fell apart. The nation split. There were wars, there were a few good kings, but mostly bad kings. Uh, and between Solomon and the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the nation changed hands over 25 times. 
The Syrians took over, the Babylonians, and the Babylonians took over, the Greeks took over, the Persians took over, and after a while, they just had no clout in international affairs. They didn't even have an army half the time. For a 70-year block of time, they were completely exiled from the land, and the nation of Israel simply became less and less and less and less a factor in world events. And the idea that somehow the entire world would somehow be blessed to the nation of Israel, that no long, that, uh, a nation that no longer had any wealth or any leverage or any influence. I mean, they didn't even have any say-so over their own future. So the idea that somehow God was going to bless the world through the nation of Israel was ridiculous. It couldn't happen. In fact, insult to injury, in 65 B.C., the Roman general Pompey the Great, uh, he marched into Jerusalem, he occupied the city again, he goes in, he, he pushed past the temple guard and the priests, he goes right into the temple, right into the Holy of Holies. This was the place that the Jews believed that God dwelled. This is where the high priest could only go once a year and serve before God. And this was the place that God, uh, the Jews believed that if you went in uninvited and unannounced, that God would strike you dead. And the priests were stunned as Pompey the Great walked right into the Holy of Holies, looked around, walked back out, and nothing happened to him. Word spread throughout Jerusalem, and the implication was clear. Jupiter, the God of the Romans, is more powerful than Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Zechariah was a little boy when that happened. And no doubt his father, just like Elizabeth's father, was priest during that area. And no doubt he remembered the day that his father came home and tore his robes and mourned because the temple had been desecrated by a, Roman, a Greek general who walked around the Holy of Holies and God did nothing. And yet that little boy grew up with that in his background and went into the priesthood and served God his whole life. And he married Elizabeth, who served God their whole, her whole life in spite of the sacrilege and the confusion and the pain. And why doesn't God act on our behalf? Why doesn't God act on behalf of the nation of Israel? And what about the promise to Abraham? And how can this little tiny conquered nation ever impact the world? I mean, we're just hanging on a thread just to survive and stay in this world. And many, many, many Jews during that time, they turned away from temple worship and their belief in God. And they just simply integrated into Greek, uh, Greek and Roman life because after all, it's over. But not for everybody. Not for Zechariah and not for Elizabeth. And, and if you'd come to them in that moment, in that season, and just said, hey, you know what? Be reasonable. Just, it's over. Just, just move on. It's a myth. It's not going to happen. It, it, it can't happen. I mean, yes, parts of it came true, and, and, but Israel can never, it will never, it will just never rise from this itty-bitty, dusty, captive part of the Roman Empire in a way that could ever impact the world or influence international world events. It cannot happen. It's a fairy tale. Come on. Be reasonable. Just give it up. Just move on and enjoy the remaining few years of your life because if there was a God, He abandoned you a long time ago. And if we had whispered that into their ear during this difficult season of their life and their golden years, we would have been completely wrong. Because the reason Luke begins his story with this story is because this was, this was the beginning 
of when God would finally and ultimately, that would finally and ultimately result in what God had planned to do from the very beginning with his promise to Abraham. And the reason this story is so important to you and so important to me is because, as I said earlier, there are moments there are periods, there are seasons, even long seasons of our lives or our relationships, maybe today, where we just wonder, seriously, it's been 2,000 years. And, and just look at 2020. Like, like, is God really still active? Does God care? Is He listening? And the message of Christmas is yes. Luke tells us that once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So there were 23 groups of priests and they cast lots. So they basically gambled to decide who was going to go in and be, or be chosen to go in. And so this is something that may happen just once in a lifetime in the life of a priest. And if chosen, he goes into the place where he stands right, side, right outside the curtain that divides the outer temple from the Holy of Holies where God dwells. Everyone else vacates that part of the temple and then he offers incense to God. It's just a very, very sacred uh, experience. It's an honor to be chosen by God. They believe that, that God through the casting of lots decided who would have this honor. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So Zachariah is in there all by himself. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So he's just in there doing his duty, the daily life of a priest, trying to be faithful. And suddenly an angel appears. And when Zachariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said, and for the record, this is just the standard angel response. Do not be afraid. And if you read the New or the Old Testament, angels always just, they just kind of get this out of the way. And do you know why angels have to start the conversation with do not be afraid? Because when you see an angel, you're afraid, okay? When people modern day, I hear a story like, oh, I saw an angel. It was so special, hashtag blessed. I'm like, I don't think so, because you didn't wet yourself a little. Because when Bible angels appear, everybody falls on their face. They think they're seeing God. And in the Bible, angels in the in, in Bible are clearly big and scary and powerful, even when they're not trying to be big, powerful, and scary. In fact, people say, uh, I've heard people say, I, I wish God would speak to me. And I get that. I've said that a few times, but part of me wonders, like, I don't know if I really want him to, because every time you read it in scriptures, like, it's terrifying, even when he takes it down to a one, okay, because he's God. And so this angel appears, and he has good news. And yet, Zechariah is terrified. And it's like, whoa, it's an angel. And Zechariah was a good man, okay? Imagine if it were you. All right, so he's a good guy. He's got nothing to worry about. If an angel shows up to me or you, we're going to start confessing stuff. Because we're like, just, I want to get this out here. But here's what the angel says. Your prayer has been heard. I'd like to just hear that sometimes, wouldn't you? Not even that your prayer is going to be answered. I mean, sometimes wouldn't you just like confirmation? To just know God's heard your prayer every once in a while. I, I just love to have an angel, like a really small angel appear. Or the servant or the cousin of an angel and just go, hey, just so you know, 
Your prayer has been heard. To have God just whisper to you, hey, just so you know, I've heard your prayer. For many of us, that alone would be enough. Just to know he heard it. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear you a son. And you're going to call him John. And he's going to be a famous John. He's going to be John the Baptist. And this is how the story begins. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, which was connected to a specific vow of devotion to God. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, why would John the Baptist need to bring back many of Israel to the Lord their God? Because as I said, many in Israel had abandoned the Lord their God, and they had done so with good reason. Because God hadn't done anything in Israel for 700 years. It was over. It was a myth. I mean, it was fun while it, was last, while it lasted. There are interesting stories to tell our children, but the God of Israel had long ago abandoned Israel. But the angel continues, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah and to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Which to me, I go, seriously? You're talking to an angel. And then he gets very diplomatic, so men pay attention. He says, I am an old man, and my wife, and you got to love the Bible, like this may get back to her. My wife is well along in years. I'm old. She's well along in years. Okay, I'm with you, angel. I'm so glad that God has heard our prayers, but you are a little late. We prayed for that in our 20s. We prayed for that in our 30s. We went ahead and for the heck of it, we prayed that in our 40s. We almost gave up praying for that in our 50s. But now I'm old, and so is my wife. How can I be sure? How can I know this is going to happen? And again, I love this. The angel's like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? How how do you know this? Dude, I'm an angel. The angel said to him, "Uh, I'm Gabriel. You're talking to an angel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And your question is, how can I be sure? So, as a result, now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true, and this is so important, at their appointed time. And see, we can breeze by that, but we have to pause because it's like, wait a minute. You mean God had this marked on his calendar? You mean after all these 700 years in the glory days of David and Solomon, God has waited this long on purpose? You mean God has, has waited and allowed people to walk away from him in droves and abandon their faith and because it looked like a fairy tale? We're, I mean, we're just a people that's conquered by every new conqueror that comes along and God has been planning this all along? You mean God has been paying attention? He's not only heard my prayers, but he's heard the prayers of his people for generations. Yes. You're saying though he seemed so quiet for so long, he's not been inactive. Yes. 
Well, meanwhile, the people are waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed in, the, in so long in the temple. He finally comes out, but he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but he, had rem- he remained unable to speak. And when, the time of service, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth came, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion, partly because losing a baby, especially at that age, would not have been uncommon. Nobody wants to go through that grief, right? She remained for five months in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. But this was just the warm-up act. This was just the opener for what was about to come. This was just evidence that God was ramping up to do what God had always planned to do and what He promised and was trusted by the, and who was trusted by those who remained faithful through the generations, generation after generation, who died, never seen the fulfillment of what God said He was going to do, but passed on to their children the hope that one day the Messiah will come. The Messiah will come. The confidence that God may be silent right now is It feels like he's been silent for so long, but God has acted. He keeps his promise. And finally, the day had come when God would put into action what he had planned to do, the promise that he had made to Abraham that every nation on earth would be blessed. And here's how one story concludes and our next story begins. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And within all this is our story. This is the dilemma that we all face, and it's the dilemma of do we continue to believe or do we give up believing? Do we serve or we just go do something else? Do we, is it really anything more than just three songs and a sermon? Do we give and be generous or do we just spend it all on us because there's really nothing more to this life than this life? Eat, drink, and be merry. Do we stay engaged? Do we stay in that difficult marriage? Or do we just do what everyone else does and claim irreconcilable differences? Do we cheat? Do we do the shady deal? Or do we maintain our integrity even though we drive home thinking, why am I maintaining my integrity in the marketplace and in my job? Nobody cares. Nobody's promoting me. Nobody even notices. They laugh behind my back because I'm a Christian. And I have standards. They, and they wonder what the heck I'm doing it for. And if I'm honest, there are moments that I wonder, what am I doing it for? Or you're a student and everybody cheats. And you wonder, why don't I cheat? Nobody gets caught. I'm not going to get caught. And they end up getting better grades than I do. Why am I so narrow? Why am I so conservative? Why am I always wondering what God thinks? Why do I get so guilt-ridden when I sin? Why don't I just do what everyone else does? You know, you're a freshman, freshman a sophomore in college, or, or college has passed and you're sitting alone night after night after night, still single, thinking, you know what, this really isn't getting me anywhere. God's not doing anything for me lately. Everyone else is, else is having fun. Everyone else is sleeping with whomever they want. I'm just missing out. And in every generation, there was a remnant of Christians that decided they were going to remain faithful in spite of of the fact that God was seemingly doing nothing for them in the meantime. So the good news is if if you ever feel that, there's nothing wrong with you. You're normal. 
And it's just welcome to the common experience for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, who have chosen to believe in Him and follow Him in spite of what we see around us and what may seem like 2,000 years of God fulfilling nothing. Welcome to the world of Zechariah and Elizabeth, a couple who decided that we're going to walk blamelessly before our God in spite of what we see and in spite of what we don't see. In spite of what people say, in spite of the fact that we can't even imagine why God rejected so long ago and for all those years our ability and our prayer and our ask, our begging to have a child. But now that somehow God would give us a child, we, we can't imagine how God would use the nation of Israel to do anything in the world, let alone bless it, when we're nothing more than some, just another Roman-occupied territory. And at the core, that difficulty in understanding, that difficulty in being able to imagine and picture how God could possibly do what He supposedly promised to do, especially when He seems so silent and so inactive, that is the dilemma that we all face eventually. Or we are facing now in our walk with God. And so the good news of Christmas is it's normal. I'd like to invite the band to come on up. You know, we may not understand it or or times like it, and there may be times that, that we may hate it, but this is just how God works. And the challenge is that you have to decide, will I continue to be a part of that remnant? Will I continue to be that unique person in the marketplace that says, no, I'm going to maintain my honesty and my integrity? I'm going to maintain my standards and how I treat people and customers and coworkers and clients and, and coworkers who, who maybe I see them or they see me as competitors for pay or competitors for promotions because all I want to know is that at the end of the day I can lay my head on my pillow and know that to the best of my ability that I sought to walk blamelessly before my God, whether I see God actively doing something for me right now or not. And the story of Christmas is a reminder that your faith in God is not misguided. That when God is silent, God is not necessarily still. And when it seems, when it seems that He's still, that He's not uninterested, it's a reminder that God chooses to to do what He chooses to do, when He chooses to do it, the way He chooses to do it, but that He's trustworthy and that He's paying attention. And he's moved and blessed by all of us that choose to remain faithful. But the best part of all, the story of Christmas is a reminder that your faith and your hope is not in vain. A song we sing around this time of year, O Holy Night, was written a long time ago. It was written by a French poet. And I love this line in the song that captures the idea of this whole message. Long lay the world, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, in sin and error. And here's a word that we don't often use. And sin and error, pining, which means longing, waiting, praying. And Christmas is a reminder that our longing and our waiting and our agonizing is not in vain. That God is a God who keeps his promises when it seems like his promises are impossible to keep. We're going to sing together. Just really appreciate the... Zan, the band, bringing that song because just the words are just such a reminder. I guess we could have just had that song and sent you guys home early and not had a sermon, but uh, 
You know, one of the things for those of you that maybe you didn't grow up in church, that the reason we do sing songs like that and sing songs before isn't just because that's just the way, the way it's always been done, but there's something powerful that we say words that sometimes they just serve as a reminder to us. Sometimes it's a direct, like, God, we're singing these words to you, but honestly, sometimes we're singing, we sing words that it's just a reminder of who God is, who he's promised to be. Let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you so much again for uh, this morning and in this particular season, the ability to gather in person. And God, we pray for our world right now. So many parts of the world right now, and including especially our country, is uh, this is just a really difficult time. For some people, there is going to be uh, an empty chair at the table in this holiday season because they lost someone. People that are battling right now, and there are, are medical people that they're struggling right now. And so, Father, I, I pray for our community, and I pray for the, all the churches that you would help us to truly reflect the love that you have for us to one another and just how we handle all this. And Father, that you would just tune our minds and spirits to the people around us that they may not have even told us, but God, they're struggling right now. And that you would use us somehow in an unexpected way to lift them up. I pray for everyone that's listening to my voice right now, God, that if they're struggling right now with the fact that they just, they're not feeling your nearness, they're not feeling your closeness, and they're wondering about that promise. I, I pray, God, that your spirit would show up in a way that we just simply can't, that would reassure them and reaffirm that their hope is not in vain and that you are with them and aware. I just pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.